Well, good morning. Is this thing on? Good morning. Um, turn in your Bibles to Colossians, the first chapter. The first chapter. I get to talking to people, and I just lose track of time. I don't know if it's I like talking or I like hearing the sound of my own voice, but I'm, I'm, trying, to be, I'm trying to be more self-aware. Um, Colossians, the first chapter, starting in the 15th verse. <clears throat> and it reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... Um, for this Lord's Day, this day that we, we rest from our labors, we rest from the busyness of life, and we take time out to, uh, to hear from you, to rest in your word, to lift our voices in worship and in prayer, to commune with each other, and Lord, um, also to receive and be edified by the means of grace that you have provided for us, word and sacrament. Lord, now as we move through this passage of Scripture, as we have been moving through the book of Colossians, we, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we might receive and hear and perceive what you uh, desire for us to know. Convict us and convince us of the holy and blessed word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. The most popular religion in the world um, in the Western world at least isn't Christianity. It isn't Islam and it isn't uh, Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism. It's actually humanism. And when we think of humanism, we don't think typically think of religion, um, but we, we have added the, the adjective as a qualifier, secular, before the word humanism. We think of what is, the, what is the de facto religion that's at work in the Western world? And it's really secular humanism. Um, humanism emerged during the early years of the Renaissance in the 13th and 14th centuries, and as a philosophy and as a movement, it got off to a really good start. Um, it was a movement that celebrated humanity. 
Um, it, uh, it pursued compassion and virtue, and it's where we really get the idea of the humanities from. Um, it's from this idea of humanism. And uh, some of the most famous art and music that came out of Europe was really the byproduct of uh, humanistic endeavor. Um, and one of, the, one of the tenets of this emerging philosophy and movement was really um, a desire to, um, to get back in contact with original manuscripts and sources. Knowledge was kind of monopolized. Texts were monopolized um, by the state, and at that time um, it was controlled by the Roman Catholic Church. And so the early reformers were themselves humanists, Erasmus and Martin Luther and even John Calvin. And um, there were a lot of good things that were associated with humanism uh, in those days. It was, a different, it was different than what it is now, but uh, it was the idea of self-determination and um, individual values, that men were not simply vassals of monarchs, but that they had intrinsic value and worth, and because of that, we ought to treat people with dignity and self-respect and, uh, and all of those things. But it quickly morphed into something different. So the idea that, that man was not simply the property of someone else, but he had access to ideas and knowledge and all of those things, uh, sort of morphed into... Um, a religion of the self, the autonomy of the self, that man was not simply the vassal of a monarch, or, but he was his own god. Um, I've kind of fast-forwarded it, and I probably have really uh, simplified it. <laughs> uh, a teacher of sociology would probably be really angry at what I just did, but we don't have tons of time, so I'm fast-forwarding through the centuries really quick. So I'm telling you what it started out as, and I'm telling you um, what's kind of going on in our culture right now and has been at work in our culture for a long time. Um, the idea of the autonomy of the self, the idea that man, essentially, is the measure of all things. This is why, we, this is why we, I identified uh, humanism as kind of the de facto religion at work in the Western world because what really drives and motivates most of us is the idea that, that we're God, uh, we, we determine our own future. We even determine our own morality. And um, if man is the measure of all things, of course, um, it's up to us individually to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And then, of course, uh, the moral dilemma is not, hardly, uh, not hard to recognize. And the moral dilemma that emerges from that is there is no such thing, ultimately, as right and wrong, because if man individually is the sum of all things man is the measure of all things, then from one man or woman to the next, we have our own sets of values and morals, and we become our own universe. Um, and ultimately, um, Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, a German philosopher, came up with this idea, you know, he says, he realizes, well, if man is the measure of all things, well, God is dead. We don't need God. Uh, that's also probably simplification, <laughs> oversimplification, but um, you get the idea. That if man is the measure of all things, man is preeminent. And um, contrary to this idea that man is preeminent, we have a passage of Scripture here in Colossians that tells us actually just the opposite. So what I want to say to you is that Christianity is really just the opposite of that value system that undergirds our world. 
Christianity is the idea that man, that we are not autonomous uh, beings, that we, we rule our own universe. We're not the measure of all things. Actually, Jesus Christ is the measure of all things. So, um, contrary to humanism, which kind of gives us this, this confidence in who we are as in individuals, um, and even this kind of self-esteem, um, there's a big difference with, the, with Christianity. There's a big difference. Um, Jesus doesn't give us self-esteem. That might say, you might be thinking, what? Say what? Jesus doesn't give us self-esteem? Actually, what Jesus gives us is assurance. And there's a big difference between self-esteem and assurance. Now, the question we ask is, is was Paul thinking of humanism when he wrote Colossians? Well, no, he wasn't thinking of humanism when he wrote Colossians. It didn't exist. But um, he does give us a confidence for this life and the life to come that is rooted not in the sufficiency of ourselves, humanism, but the sufficiency of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And he does this by telling us that Jesus is the head of the human race. And so this passage is broken down that in, in, in really three parts. Jesus is the head of creation, he's the head of the church, and he's the head of new creation. Look at verse 15. Jesus as the head of creation. He says Jesus, he says he, we're speaking of Christ from the, the, previous, the context of the previous few verses, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Adam and Eve were made in God's image, um, but after the fall, reflected through, uh, uh, excuse me, um, failed to reflect uh, God's image in the way they were supposed to, as we failed to do. Um, the second commandment also uh, forbids us from making graven images to God. So this language that Paul is using, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is really answering a couple questions, really answering a, a couple ideas that would certainly have been in the mind of the Colossians in the first century. Um, what carved images idols can't do, which is faithfully reflect God's nature and character, and what Adam failed to do, which is faithfully reflect God's nature and character, Jesus does perfectly. That's the idea. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He perfectly reflects the nature and character of God. That's the idea. And here's what Paul is saying. Man is supposed to reflect God's image. He fails. People make images that are, uh, that are, that are supposed to represent God. That's idolatry. But Jesus is the image of God par excellence. That's what he's saying here. He's not an image. He's saying when we think about us reflecting God's image, when we think about the images, the graven images that people make and bow down to, Jesus is the epitome of the image of God. He is the image of God. And he drives this point home. Look at the second half of the verse. He says, he is the firstborn of all creation. So he's the image of the invisible God, and he's the firstborn of all creation. The past couple of weeks, we've been talking about how Paul, in the book of Colossians, uses the textual apparatus of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. And there's this imagery that's being imported. Remember last week, we talked about 
um, sharing in the inheritance, a new exodus, and the language that Paul uses. Well, again, Old Testament themes are subsumed in Jesus Christ. Physically, Adam was the firstborn man, the head of the human race. In Exodus 4.22, Israel is God's firstborn son. In fact, I read through Exodus this week, and God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let Israel go, they're my firstborn son, and if you don't, I'll kill your firstborn. Israel was God's firstborn son. So here's this idea of the firstborn. Adam is the firstborn of creation. Israel is God's firstborn son. In antiquity, the word firstborn was a legal term uh, used to refer to the legal heir of a father's inheritance. Remember last week we talked about sharing in the inheritance. And it also means first in rank. And so remember John's words, um, John the Baptist's words in John 1.30? When Jesus, when Jesus uh, um, speaking of Christ, he says, he who comes after me is before me. And what he's saying is, he ranks before me. So this is the idea of the firstborn. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, in John 8, 58, it infuriated the Pharisees to the point that they wanted to kill him. Now for us, this is, as I, as I said last week, this is all common lingo for us because we're Christians. But if I can just take you back into the mind of, the, of people in the first century, the idea that a Mediterranean peasant from a, the backwater village uh, of the region of Galilee was actually the firstborn of all creation who was the image of the invisible God and ranked above all other human beings is an earth-shattering idea. And that's what Paul is telling the Colossians, that Jesus outranks everyone, including Caesar. In fact, it's really a political claim that Caesar, in the ancient world, there were coins that said Caesar et soter, Caesar is savior. So to say Jesus is the firstborn, Jesus is Savior, Jesus outranks all other human beings is, 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 a, is an unbelievable, it's a fantastic statement. And for us, we take it for granted. We shouldn't take it for granted. Incidentally, I want to say that the job, my job up here is not to take a 2,000-year-old text and make it relevant or modernize it. My job is to take us as modern people back into the text. So we're in a time machine somewhat when we talk about the Bible and we talk about the text of Scripture and we talk about what's going on here in the book of Colossians. We're kind of trying to get in a time machine and go backwards 2,000 years so we can better understand the Word of God. We can better understand what God is telling not only the Colossians, but what he wants to tell us too. So Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Here's all of these ideas converging together to communicate who Jesus is. I said a minute ago that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And look at what he says in verse 16. He says, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and through him and for him. The heavens, the earth, the universe, the stars, we have telescopes right now or little spaceships 
that are you know, drifting out of our solar system and taking pictures of galaxies you know, far beyond us. And this passage is saying, he made that. He made those things. This man who was born of a woman in poverty, who never achieved much material and worldly success, is actually the one who created those far distant galaxies and even the world we live on that you're standing on and sitting in right now. He made it. He is the head of creation. Um, there is a, a documentary I watched a few years ago um, by a German filmmaker named Werner Herzog, or Werner Herzog. <laughs> um, it's called Grizzly Man, and you may have seen it. And it's about a, uh, a guy named Timothy Treadwell who goes into the Alaskan wilderness, and he sees himself as kind of a self-appointed caretaker of these massive... Um, uh, coastal brown bears in Alaska. And Alaska has its own, um, you know, I don't know, parks and recreations, I don't know what you call it, the people that manage the wildlife, wildlife conservation. But this guy's kind of like a, a rogue, you know, um, kind of a radical. And he goes out there and he sleeps in a tent and he feels that he's the protector of these bears. And he was out there for, for 14 or 15 years until he was killed and eaten by a bear. This is a true story. And he, was, and he filmed much of his experience out there, and a German documentarian gets a hold of the film and makes a documentary about it. And in the movie, Timothy Treadwell is uh, naming the bears. There's Fluffy and Lovey and all the... And, you know, the bears, just, they look at him, and, you know, and one day they say, well, you know, he's, 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 he'd be a good meal, but I've got berries in front of me. And ultimately, they did make a meal out of him. And I don't say that jokingly. It's actually a very tragic story, but the... The, the narrator, which is the producer of the documentary, Werner Herzog, he says, he makes the statement, he says, it's at this point that I have to really, I have to really challenge uh, and take issue with Timothy Treadwell's view of the world. And Werner Herzog says, in my view, the one common denominator in the universe is not love and peace and harmony, but murder, death, and chaos. And that's a very materialistic world uh, view, that there is no one governing... Uh, the universe, that random acts of brutality and chaos, like this bear eating this, uh, this, uh, this guy, um, is really the norm, and we shouldn't be shocked at it. And actually, um, what this passage here is telling us is that um, if all things are created through Jesus and for Jesus, it means, contrary to Werner Herzog's statement, that um, there are no real random acts of chaos uh, and chance. So this passage is really taking issue with that idea that the one common denominator in the world is, is, and in the universe is, is violence and, and chaos and random acts of chance. Just the opposite. God is controlling and upholding all things, and this passage of Scripture is basically saying Jesus is the one who's not only created all things, but is holding all things together even as we speak. Look at verse 17. He says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul's view of Jesus is not, is not just uh, rank in the human order, it is a cosmic order. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 28 18 through 20, before the Great Commission, he says, All power in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? In fact, the Great Commission is only. Is only uh, um, 
is only doable, if I can say it that way, because Jesus has all power in heaven and earth. The idea of the Great Commission is predicated on the fact that Jesus is in control of all things seen and unseen, dominions and thrones and powers and principalities. Jesus has power over it all. And verse 17 says, and he's before all things. And in him, all things are holding together. Sure, God made laws of the universe. But even those laws only hold together, not because there is some kind of self-authenticating value about those laws, but because God makes those laws obey him. He holds all things together. So the question I guess I would ask is, why do we get so stressed out? And why do we get so afraid? We do, right? We get afraid. We get stressed out about life. We get stressed out about death. We're, we're stressed out about this creation, this world, and the next world. We are. And this, this passage is really the remedy it says that Jesus is the head of creation. In fact, the next verse we're going to move into is it says he's the head of the church and then the firstborn from the dead also. But he's the firstborn of creation. All things are created in him, and in him all things hold together. Sometimes we think that, that the forces of darkness and evil are really what control this world. Now, I want to be careful here and say that it is true that the forces of darkness control this world's system. But even this world's system is subservient to God's sovereign authority over the world. This is my Father's world, right? That's what the hymn says. So this is really, this is God. The Bible says the earth and the fullness thereof belong to the Lord. So when we think about the fear and the stress of thinking that, you know, uh, that at any minute, you know, dark evil and darkness is going to overtake us, I think it's really since Christ, not I think, I know. It's just the opposite. Before the cross, darkness reigned. But after Jesus came, there is a new, a new ruler in this universe. The crucifixion was a game changer. And Jesus is really now actually the only one in charge of this world. It's the forces of darkness and evil that really have to be afraid. And so what does that mean for us? It means that, that we can have confidence that our lives are being carried along a course under God's sovereign care because Jesus is the head of the human race. He's the head of creation. He's the head of our lives. And look at what he says here in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the head of the human race. And he's the head of the church. In Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Here again is another blow to the humanist ideal. Man isn't the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ uses the church as a place of ingathering for salvation in this age, and for the age to come. Look at the verse again. It says, he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, and here's this word again, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So here's this parallel between these two sections. Verse 15, he is the firstborn of creation, and now in verse 18, he's the firstborn from the dead. And here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus 
is Lord over this creation and the new creation. See, him being the firstborn to rise from the dead by his own power, that's important, because in Scripture, Jesus wasn't the first person to actually rise from the dead. But he was the first to rise from the dead by his own power with authority over death, hell, and the grave. And his resurrection from the dead is access and authority into the new creation, eternal life. So saying he's the firstborn from the dead is speaking of Christ's resurrection. Here's some, some really helpful notes I found in the Reformation Study Bible. It says, Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of a new creation. As the first to rise from the dead, never to die again, Christ inaugurates the new creation and new age anticipated by the Old Testament prophets and found a new humanity in himself. In other words, our identity now that we're Christians is no longer in Adam who fell in the garden. Adam's, our, our, our identity in Adam uh, uh, characterizes us as sinners, right? Fallen, alienated from the love and mercy and righteousness of God. But in Jesus, there was a new humanity founded. Jesus is the head of the, not only the human race, but a new humanity. And it goes on to say, his own resurrection is an anticipation and a guarantee of the resurrection that all his brothers and sisters will enjoy. And so here's why Jesus is to have preeminence, like this passage says, in the, uh, in the first place. Um, and, it's, and for those of you, I, I realize that there's some of us in here that, are, that some of this language may be kind of heady. We've got some kids. Preeminence, guys, just means he's first. Jesus is number one. He's, he's, he's the boss, okay? I thought about that, and I realized, I wonder if an 11-year-old knows what preeminence means. So he's first. He's number one. Um, and he's, he's to be preeminent in all things. And the passage goes on to say, in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so when we think about the fullness of God dwelling and being pleased to dwell, you know what, you know what images are conjured up? Where was the fullness of God's presence pleased to dwell in, in the Old Testament? Well, it was in the garden, right? God's presence was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God's presence was pleased to dwell in the garden, and he walked in the cool of the day, and he talked with Adam, but Adam rebelled, and so that situation was ruined. And then God came in and, they, and delivered the Israelites from Egypt, and they set up the tabernacle in the wilderness, and where did God's presence once again find itself pleased to dwell? On the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, between the two cherubim? Right? So there's the Ark of the Covenant, and the presence of God is pleased to dwell in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And then when Solomon finally builds a permanent building for God, the temple, the presence of God is pleased to dwell in the temple. Right? When Solomon dedicates the temple, there was so much, the, the, the glory cloud filled the temple that the, the priests couldn't even stand to minister. It was thick. Remember last week we talked about how in Exodus, one of the plagues was darkness that was sent upon the land that could be felt. Could be felt. It was a darkness that could be felt. Well, the presence of the glory of God in the temple was so thick, it could be felt, and the priests could not minister to even stand. They couldn't stand to even minister. <clears throat> now, here's what's interesting about this passage, and here's what's interesting about this statement. Paul writes this in about 61 A.D., about nine years before the temple is destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And what Paul is doing is he's anticipating the question that's going to come up from the Jews 
right? And from, from everyone who knows that the temple is God's dwelling place, where God is pleased to dwell. Here's this shift. I want you to just, just go with me here. Just think about this. The presence of God is in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem is where God's presence dwells. And here's what Paul is getting at, because he knows it's coming. He knows the judgment on the temple in Jerusalem is coming, and it did nine years later in the Roman-Jewish War. And what he's doing is he's making this shift. It's not about the temple, guys. It's about Jesus. The fullness of deity, the fullness of the presence of God Almighty is pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. This, 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 this tectonic shift from a location to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 21 and 3 says, the dwelling place of God will be with men. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Last week we talked about how Jesus is the summation of Israel's destiny. Well, Jesus is also the new temple. He's also the place where God's permanent dwelling place is. It is in him. And that answers the question of where is the presence of God. And all that the temple represented, God's presence, his glory, his forgiveness of sins, his, uh, his, the fullness of his deity is fulfilled when Christ comes into the world, dies on the cross, and rises from the dead. There is this new world order. You know, we talk about, you know, the conspiracy of a new world order. We get freaked out. Well, Jesus created a new world order in the first century. He changed the course of human history. No longer was the presence and the glory of God uh, confined to a building. No longer is the head of the human race, Adam, and whose identity we, 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 we identify as sinners. No longer. Jesus is the head, the firstborn of creation and the new creation. He is the link for all of us to eternal life. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's the firstborn of creation, and he's the firstborn from the dead. And the link is he's the head of the church. You want to know how to relinquish all fear? Trust in Christ. That's how you relinquish stress. stress you, know? you know, there's a certain amount of stress we need just to get up out of bed in the morning, right? Um, and and that's, that's fine. But the kind of stress that is idolatry, the kind of stress that manifests itself in, the, in fear that makes our chests tight, where every moment we're really not trusting that God is sovereign over all things, but we're trusting, like I said last week, see? <clears throat> we're really not trusting. I, I wasn't trusting. I had enough time to unpack this point. I had to give myself a timer. But I think that's, that's what we should walk away from from this passage of Scripture. I also want to say this. Listen, this is, this is heady theological stuff here, and not all the Bible is like this. Some of Scripture is much more, uh, relates much more to our daily lives and application, and I think this does relate to our lives daily, but there's some heavy, heavy ideas being communicated here. And we ought not to dismiss this just because it seems abstract, this is something actually that Paul intended for the Colossians to comfort them in their daily life. This was something that Paul intended for the Colossians to, 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 to give them a sense of hope in this world and even in the life to come. And that's exactly what it should do for us too. And then finally in verse 20, it says, He reconciles all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word that's used in the original language there is really just peacemaker. Um, and it says it, it, the idea of peacemaker is that um, the, influence, uh, the, the influence of a peacemaker pacifies and it restores peace um, and it favors good understanding, settles quarrels, annuls conflicts, reconciles and calms minds. And if you think about the, the conflict that we as sinners had with God, Jesus makes peace with that. And people say, you know, you, want, you need to make peace with your maker before you, before you die. Well, that's what Jesus does. He helps us make peace with our maker. You can't make peace with your maker. You can't make peace with your neighbor until, um, until you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the peacemaker par excellence. To know Jesus is to know peace. Jesus is the last Adam. He's the head of the human race. He's the firstborn of all creation, and he is the one that carries us into the new creation, eternal life, by his resurrection from the dead and the blood that he shed on his cross. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son in human flesh. Help us not to um, dismiss or to think too lightly on what has been said this morning from your holy word. Lord, as we confront our own, um, our own uh, kind of placement in our world and in our culture, informed by values and ideals that are contrary to your kingdom values, help us to confront our sense of autonomy with your lordship. The fact that Jesus is the head of creation, made creation, and has made us, and provides an escape for us from the consequences of our sins. You not only hold this creation together, but you also are creating a new creation in which, in which righteousness dwells forever. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your grace that you have poured out on us. We certainly didn't deserve it, but Lord, we're so glad we've received it. Help this knowledge to strengthen us in the coming weeks and months as we face real trials in our lives. Lord, challenges in our family and stress and even Christians in parts of the world that are being, they're, they're being killed and persecuted for their faith. We know that this same hope, the hope that is in Jesus Christ in the resurrection also comforts our brothers who are being persecuted. Lord, we thank you now for this, and we pray for your continued mercy and strength as we head into this week. In Jesus' name, amen. As you reflect on the sermon on this passage this morning, the ushers will be coming by with, with baskets. Would you give your tithes and offerings this morning as an act of worship and also a connection card and a prayer card if you filled one out?